Mike Shea with SlyFlourish.com, and this is the DM's Deep Dive here on the Don't Split the Podcast Network. In this show, I get together get together with a community expert on, in D&D, pick one topic, and dive deep into it. And today, I am here with Beth Ball. Beth, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. So my name is Beth. I'm one of the two writers for dnddebug.com. Um, I'm also working on a novel, and I'm a graduate student studying contemporary literature. Excellent. So I, I came across uh, I came across the blog D and D Duets probably a year ago, mm-hmm. and uh, was was very fascinated by it. And I think the topic of one on one D and D play hadn't become a real big thing yet. Um, it was something that's always been discussed, and I, I have a feeling people have been playing D and D one on one for a long time, probably as long as the game has been around. Mm-hmm. In fact, there are many stories of people who first learned D and D by getting together with their brother or getting together with one friend and learning how to play. So it's been going on forever. Mm-hmm. It is not typically what we consider how D&D is played. Right. And I think that the first time uh, it has now come up as a, as a real thing was with uh, Dragon of Ice Fire Peak mm-hmm. and the D&D Essentials Kit, which included uh, rules and descriptions for how to play D&D one-on-one. And I think you guys, uh, you, you and your significant other, have um, were on top of this topic before anybody was really going deep into it. Like you guys have written adventures and things for one-on-one D&D play for a while now, right? Yes, we put out our first one January of this year. So it's, and then have done a few more throughout the year. So. Right, right. So yeah, so you were, you were on top of this topic before the topic became a big topic. Mm-hmm. And I was, it was always like, yeah, that's kind of interesting. And then I'm like, wow, the, the D&D folks are on top of this. And then <laughs> I recently said, I want to, I want to try it. Cause I saw the, the D&D essentials kit. So my friend Enrique Bertrand, who has been on this show before, uh, he and I have been running a one-on-one game mm-hmm. and it's fascinating to me. So I wanted to have somebody on who has spent significant time both doing it and, and thinking about it and talking about it and dive deep into this topic so that we can help other people learn how to do, how to play D&D one-on-one. So I always like to start the show off with three useful tips that people can, Mm -hmm. can quickly walk away with. So what are three tips that you have for DMs to run one-on-one D&D games? Okay. So tip number one is establish and maintain trust. So the player has to believe that you are rooting for them and for their character in order to be able to engage with you. Um, Because I feel like we'll end up saying this a lot, but it's just the two of you. So there's not any sort of buffer or anything. So establishing and maintaining trust. Um, Secondly, skew the game for things that the player likes. So if they really hate puzzles, guess what you don't need to be doing? You know, it's going to be super miserable if you know, 30 minutes later, their character is just taking damage because they don't want to engage with your puzzle. Um, but also, I think for DMs, go ahead and include the things that you really enjoy as well, because I think it's super important for you to both be having fun. Um, the third thing is that you're collaborating together. And I think this does shift a little bit when we're looking at one of the um, hard rock adventures versus a homebrew world. But either way, you're building the world together. And as much as possible, we want the player to be the one driving the narrative forward because it's their character who the whole plot tends to um, revolve around. Just like in Harry Potter, we tend to be following what Harry's doing and the things that are happening with Harry. And we get other people occasionally, but mostly it's Harry. So the same thing with that. Um, it's actually player... it's actually really about Snape, but we'll let that go for the <laughs> time true. being. But we don't know that till the end. We don't end. know that till the end. Exactly. Um, so let the player do some of the work too um, with driving the narrative forward. So try to give them space um, and engage with their character. But I think don't put everything on yourself. Don't feel like you have to have everything figured out at the beginning. They're going to help you. Yeah, those are three great tips. The tip about trust is really interesting. That's one would argue that that's really good advice for DMs. Period. Right. I think that so. building building an element of trust. But I I know that there are certainly DMs who treat well. I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna use brash, bold statements that are not true, all the time. That sometimes there's a competitive nature between the players and the DM. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, previous editions of the game. I'd argue reinforce through their mechanics and through their design, reinforce that that competitive nature between a DM and players. And yeah, that idea of trust uh, it, it helps a lot in any D&D game. It sounds like though, it's way more critical 
in a one-on-one game than it might yeah. be in a uh, in a four-on-one or five-on-one D&D game. Yeah, I think it's it's necessary because there's nothing to balance out that doubt. And again, you're asking the the player to really engage with you and be vulnerable and put their character in dangerous situations. And you know, there's no one to push that forward if they're feeling kind of hesitant or if they're frustrated with you. And I think people tend to play one-on-one with people that they like. So, you know, your best friend, significant other, friend from online, it doesn't matter. You really don't want to be upsetting that person because I think it starts to get kind of personal really fast. Right, right. Yeah. And the, the, so a a question for you, when you talk about uh, skewing the game towards things that the player likes, what's, I mean, on the assumption, and in some cases you just know, like, you know, if my wife and I were to play one-on-one D&D, I have a pretty good idea what she likes in a game, I hope, and what she doesn't. But even in that circumstance, what's the best way for me to find that out? Like a session zero or something like that? I think a session zero, I think if you know the the person that can help too, so, um, and maybe having an idea of how much they're going to be into RP or um, like, I don't like dungeons. They could I get claustrophobic and then in game I get kind of frustrated. I don't want to pick the different directions. So we don't tend to use dungeons and mm-hmm. I don't tend to run dungeons. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think things like that, some of it, I think it's fine to figure out by trial and error too. So it's not like you run this one thing and they hate it and it's all over. Um, it's okay to, to test something out, but you'll get an idea as you play in a session zero or even through the first couple levels, what do they really respond to? Yeah, I think that, that that's another one. And I, I, again, something that I've seen in, in, I don't want to use the term normal D&D games as though one-on-one games are some crazy abnormal thing when I think it's fantastic that we can now extend the, the range of, of people who can play D&D from two. And I've seen other people who even talk about solo D&D which is a whole other topic. Um, but if we, if we think about the more traditional form of D&D of a DM and one or more players, the fact that it is now one or more players brings us tremendous flexibility to the game. The, the idea of understanding, so I, I've certainly seen it, that people will say the kinds of things they like, and they might have a general idea in the beginning of things that they like, but then as the game goes on, it might turn out they don't like it as much. So I've seen players who are more than happy to say, oh, I want a game where death is a real factor mm-hmm. and um, you know, where, where that danger needs to be real until they're dead. And then they're like, wow, this sucks. <laughs> right? <laughs> or um, I had, a, I had one, of my, one of my favorite players who I, I built a campaign with three different major plots that were going on at the same time. And they were all moving forward fast. And whichever plot they picked, the other ones were moving forward regardless. And the player said to me after we were four or five sessions into this, you know, I thought this was going to be a really awesome campaign and I hate it. (laughs) I'm paraphrasing, but like, wow, I thought I'd really like this style and I always feel like I'm behind, right? (laughs) So there's something about, I think initially, it feels like initially talking to a player about what, uh, what kind of things they want to see and don't want to see in a, in a game, but then also trying things out and mm-hmm. then adjusting as you go, right? right? sounds like that's really important because what they say and what actually it might feel as they're playing the game could be very different things. I would think mm-hmm. specifically in a one-on-one game too, because it is a very different style of, of, of D&D than we might be used to. Mm-hmm. So, so and those that- are great tips. So one of the, one of the, so stepping, stepping back and thinking and thinking big about this, one of the things that has come up and, and I know I felt it when I first said I wanted to run a one-on-one D&D game. And certainly people I've talked to, I've felt the same thing, uh, which is that people are apprehensive about mm-hmm. running D&D one-on-one. And uh, I had everybody from people who have been playing for many, for decades, to people who it was literally their first session playing D&D ever. And I mentioned the fact that, oh, by the way, the D&D Essentials Kit lets you play with you and one other person. And they're, and it, you know, it was like they bit a lemon, right? They're like, <laughs> Oh, right. And you're like, why? Like, why, you know, so, and I, and I think it's because it feels, it feels like it's going to be a more intimate experience. And I think people are afraid of that. Mm-hmm. What, do, what do you, what do you, what are your thoughts on it? So I, I think you're totally right about it being a more intimate experience or that being the concern when I've told people, yeah, I write a blog about playing one-on-one D and D their first reaction is, wow, that sounds really intimate. And I'm like, yeah, it's amazing. And you know, they're not having that same reaction to, to the intimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it depends 
for different people, I think that concern can kind of shift. So why in this case is this intimacy bad? Are we worried that you know, my significant other is gonna discover that I'm not a good DM? You know, is that what's going to happen? Are we concerned that, um, I don't know. So I think it, it shifts and, and depends a lot on, on who it is. But again, we can't expect ourselves to be perfect. And I think that that is where the intimacy can kind of come to a head. And so if you're willing to try things out and grow and, and play in a new style, then you're going to do fine as a DM because you're willing to make adjustments and learn how this other person likes to play and they're going to learn and adjust too. And so I think everything we're doing with RPGs is really intimate. It's scarier for me when we're playing with friends than when it's just the two of us because I feel more comfortable with just one other person than in a group. So I feel like my characters are better in those situations, but I've also played one-on-one way more than in groups. So I think it can, can just kind of depend, but, um, I also think as we play for longer that you get more comfortable and that intimacy kind of shifts. So I think anytime we're doing something new, it can be uncomfortable. Anytime we are exposing a different part of ourselves to someone else, even if it's just, you know, a casual friend, that that intimacy is still going to be, we're still going to feel vulnerable, but we're going to be totally fine too. How long have you been playing one-on-one, D&D one-on-one? We started in March of 2018, so almost two years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, it, that's that. What I found, so I think when Enrique and I said, "Hey, we want to play this," a lot of it was like we're both bloggers, and we both feel like you know this is sort of a new direction D and D is going, and if we're going to pretend to be on this train at all, we should try this, <laughs> and that sort of broke us past the idea of like, is this going to be weird? Right. And then immediately it wasn't right. Immediately it was like, we're playing D and D and it was not any different. And I love both he and I, I think we even said it, like we were both surprised how much we liked it, right. How much it was just fun and easy. And as a DM, it's easier, right. Yeah. It's easier for me than running for four, for four people. And that was surprising, right. Even with the, having to kind of play with the, play with the mechanics to make sure weird things don't happen, which we're going to dive into as well. Um, yeah, just getting getting past that idea of is it going to be weird, right? Mm-hmm. And just and I and I think certainly I have one I've had one whole experience right with one person, but that one kind of showed me like I am totally up for <laughs> I'm totally up for running D and D one on one with other people too. But I, but it is this weird. It is interesting that 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 reaction I think is interesting and 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 I think that yeah the idea of like just dive in, just try it. You know, it's mm-hmm. not going to be weird, and no one's you know no one's going to make fun of you. And whoever you're playing with isn't going to hate you. You know, it's going to, it's going to be fine. Um, so which, what are the tricky bits? What are, what are the hard parts of running D&D one-on-one? Like besides, besides doing it, right? right. Uh, what, what, are the, what are the hard parts when you're actually running a one-on-one D&D game? So I think a surprising one can be note-taking in session. Um, because, and so that includes things like info dumping or finding out information. Um, because there's not really time or someone else can't be talking to this NPC while your note taker, while everybody's scribbling down notes. Same thing if the player can't find whatever it is they're looking for in their notes, everything just comes to a screeching halt. Um, So as much as possible, I think have a shared Google Drive or send them information after the session so that that way they can stay really engaged. Um, Yeah, it's a good idea. I hadn't thought of that. Mm-hmm. And and we do, I'll write summary notes after we play. So I'll have a few notes while it's going. So I have an idea, um, but that way, you know, it's just a couple words at a time. So I'm not having to try to get down all these different locations and information and names, and then trying to drive the narrative forward and figure out everything that's happening. For, for DMs, I think the same thing with notes during session. So have a, a quick way to do them, um, but as much as possible, have that set aside and give it to the player after the session and same thing jot down some notes after you guys play um, or set up some notes uh, just before your next session kind of recapping to keep things fresh are there are there any other any other tricky bits that that jump out to you um we found i think big transitions so changing a narrative arc for example or um going to a totally new location can be hard 
Um, I also think that DM burnout is something that definitely needs to be considered. Or if the player gets kind of stuck with their character or something like that, that can be really difficult. Um, and one thing I found both as a DM and a player for one-on-one -on -one is um, you can get so into the, the character because you are just really immersed in this experience of just the two of you. And I have a problem kind of transitioning out of a session into normal life again. And especially, again, if you're playing with someone that you're close to, if your character or their character is really mad at you, that can get really, I think it can be hard to kind of suss that out. So take a second check in is important as well as, oh, I should have said this in the, in the tips, but give yourself little breaks um, because I don't think you realize how much it's weighing on you, but it's just you and the other person. And I mean, those three hours really start to add up as things are increasing, tensions rising, you're trying to run combat pause, grab a snack, everything's going to be fine. And then, and then come back if you feel that you know, you're getting tense or that they are. Um, yeah. And it, it, it's interesting. The idea of that tension can bleed outside of the bounds of, of D and D. Mm -hmm. Luckily for me, I just shut Skype off <laughs> and, and Enrique goes away and then I don't have to worry about it until he says something angry on Twitter or something like that. Um, so that, that, that works well. So uh, one of the areas, which I, I have a feeling, and certainly judging from this conversation, I might be misguided in where my attention has been spent thinking about one-on-one D&D games. But I've spent a fair bit of time obsessing about the mechanics of one-on-one, -on -one, particularly like encounter balance and uh, facing monsters and, and how, since the game is, is, I think the mechanics of the game are generally, I'm pretty sure this is correct, that it's written around the idea of four characters. And then, you know, can kind of, waver around there but generally speaking when you look at monsters and how they compare to characters which is a loose system at best it's got all kinds of problems but generally speaking they were thinking about four characters uh when you're running when you're when you're building encounters or or combat encounters sort of spontaneously erupt during your game how do you ensure that the challenge stays appropriate and doesn't you don't kill the character because there's just so few of them mm -hmm. um I think be asking yourself what's going to be fun. And so having that conversation with the player ahead of time, do you want PC death to be on the table? How much challenge do they respond well to? And so kind of keeping that in mind as you're loosely setting things up. Um, I like to come at it from the other side is how can we empower the characters to be as diverse as possible? So you want them to be really flexible. Um, lots of character builds are, you know, some, this one's better at melee and this one's better at range. For your, the main PC of a duet game, I think as much as you can, have them be able to do a little bit of both. Um, so we, our bard, for example, has a, he has two subclasses. So he's College of Lore and College of Swords. So hmm. he has that little extra bump to combat just in case something happens. And that gives him enough to be able to work around things. Uh, so I think those kinds of things can be helpful. Tiny bumps like a, um, like a bow that has hunter's mark on it. So that way your ranger is not having to concentrate and having to do this other thing. So those little tweaks I think can be really helpful too. Um, but thinking about those, those random encounters, um, I don't know, did that answer? Your yeah. Question? So the, right. It seems you brought up a couple of interesting points. One that I want to dig into. Do you, do you, have you found in, in your experiences that there are particular house rules that help shore up those areas where a character might be under, you know, underpowered for the world of D and D, right? Like you mentioned having a couple of different builds for a single uh, class, like the bard can have two different colleges at the same time, which mm -hmm. I don't think you can do. I think even with multi-classing, you can't do that. Right. Right. Um, so are there other, are there other things that you, you know, house rules that you found that really help shore up, shore up uh, those, those deficiencies? Um, yes. So if you have a multi-classing character, let them have the full spellcasting table. So mm. um, if you have a you know, druid and ranger or paladin, something else, let them have access to the full spells. You don't have to give them extra spells, but still that way you're at the, at the right level, they do have these fourth level spells. And I think that helps even out the scale really, really well. Yeah, their utility, um, their utility mm -hmm. extends. Exactly. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and I, and I really like your idea about tying 
tying class abilities to items. It's something I've been doing in my regular game anyway. I sort of like to break the bounds of the game by giving characters weapons that can uh, have effects of a class that they are not. So mm -hmm. if a fighter gets a hold of an axe and that axe can cast divine smites, you know, then now they've they've bled into the paladin. They can't do it all the time. They don't do it as well as a paladin does it, but they've got this thing. Or uh, I think in the in Dragon of Icefire Peak, for example, um, there's an area you can get a necklace of fireballs. So mm -hmm. a fighter that has a necklace of fireballs, you know, it's like that's arguably one of the best wizard spells, you know, probably up to fifth level. So the fact that a fighter has it now, they have crowd control, right? And if they mm -hmm. are facing six goblins, <laughs> they know what to do. Um, so I, I really, I really like that idea. I really like the idea of of throwing in magic items or dropping in, you know, potions and scrolls and other things that give the character that help that are designed specifically to shore up the the deficiencies that a character would have. Uh, what about um, uh, sidekicks and and you know DMPCs or sidekicks? I think in in your, your the, the conversations you and I had an email about it. Um, we, we talked, you, you mentioned that you feel they're kind of the same thing. I have, yeah. I have a question about that, but, but what, in general, what, what are your thoughts about running sidekicks and how do you, how do you guys do it? So we started with a sidekick that was our kind of our own rules. And so I was just learning and I learned to play playing one-on-one. -on -one. So at first, Jonathan ran the sidekick for um, for RP and in combat. And then he gave me a little note card with, the stats. So basically in combat, I could roll damage and decide where to move. Mm -hmm. And so it eventually got more complicated. And so now I have, depending on what we're playing and if I'm playing or if he's DMing, we'll be running multiple full characters in one of our games. Whereas in another, we'll use a sidekick and a DMPC and a PC and that's it. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say, I know this is a, this is a little touchy because I think not everyone would agree, but I think that you need a DMPC to play one-on-one. -on -one. Hmm. Um, it doesn't have to always be the same DMPC, but it's really boring to have the character walk around, explore by themselves, mm -hmm. day in and day out. They're just limited in what they're going to be able to do. So when you, just to make sure I'm clear, so when you say a DMPC, uh, you mean like a DMPC or a sidekick or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're referring to anything like that, not as, because I think you just mentioned that You'll have a PC, a sidekick, and a DMPC, three characters. Mm -hmm. Yes. But but you're saying you generally want to have at least two. Yes, for okay. sure. Okay. Yeah. I think just in terms of play, that gives the right. character somebody to talk to. Yeah. Um, when they get to a new place, it helps them, you know, if they can meet someone there, that can be helpful. So I think as the DM, you're usually going to be two characters. Um, we found it tends to be easier for the player to be their one character and then for the you know, at least they have somebody going with them they go somewhere um and then maybe you have a dmpc for a particular location who knows lots of different things about the place um, but kind of helping i think that helps the player and it helps you as the dm so that way you can stay really immersed in the rp um, yeah, but i that, think that works a lot better for one-on-one -on -one. yeah my, my experience with enrique and that was i think another thing i'm i feel I, i'm happy because we sort of fell into a lot of this stuff mm -hmm. accidentally and it seems like we fell in a i i think it says something about the way that uh, the dnd essentials kit was designed there are, there are parts of the essentials kit i think are fantastic there are parts i think need a little bit of work that's a whole other show but um one of the things that it i, I think it fell into well and we weren't sure how to do it like who controls the character mechanically, and then who controls it from a story perspective. And we eventually found that the comfort zone, which we sort of just, like, we didn't know. We literally started the show, like, I don't know, you know, we'll figure it out. And um, we eventually got to the point where he controls the sidekick mechanically, but I control it from a, from an RP standpoint. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, the, the, I don't, I think you're right. I don't think the show would work. I don't think that that game would work if he didn't have a secondary character you know, that, that I was controlling. And mm -hmm. there's so much value in being able to use that as an element of the story. Mm -hmm. So when Berendar, the level one fighter, sees the white dragon and says, I'm going to go get that guy right now. And his friend Bing is like, 
maybe we better just hold back a little bit. He's like, fine, you know, <laughs> and, and it's, you know, and he knew it, right? Like, right. he knows the first level characters and dragons don't mix, but he, um, that, that idea that the interaction between the characters has been for me, the great fun of that game. Mm -hmm. And again, like we weren't sure, like, I, I think I asked him, like, do you want to role play? I think at first I was like, you take both and role play both. Right. And it clearly wasn't, working real well and i just sort of grabbed the character back totally subconsciously and then i, I even say it on, on, on during the game i said well it looks like i'm role-playing bing <laughs> right? and it just and it felt good so yeah i think that that's a really powerful idea that i don't think is spelled out super clearly in in, in um you know i don't think that's something that people would know inherently that uh, and, and let me ask so, so do you when 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 you have a dmpc so when you were first learning, it sounded like it was easier to have uh, the DM control the secondary character just so you're not having to learn two sets of rules at the same time. Exactly. Um, if you have experienced players, do you, do you think that it's, it works for them to be able to control the mechanics of multiple characters or is it better that the DM controls the mechanics? I think it, definitely if you have experienced players, totally fine. Give them a sidekick, let them run around with them. I think too, if they would rather use, for me, what I'm playing, I don't like moving from a character sheet to a stat block. Um, mm. And it's not that bad, but I prefer to have everything that's identical. <laughs> You're um, looking at the same place for AC. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> okay, here are these things and um, we need a role persuasion. Um, where is that? And so you're not, you're not having to figure those things out because it's all in the same place. Um, and so that's something for me that was a little bit easier with just having, um, or why I would run a full character. I know one of the concerns, so why the sidekicks are powered the way that they are, is that you don't want a, the sidekick character to be overwhelming or overcoming the, the PC. That to me is less of a concern so long as the PC is the one or the player is the one who's getting to decide things. It's like when our paladin is divine smiting vampires, if I'm the player, I'm still rolling the damage. So it still feels really cool. I've got a handful of dice, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so that's still me, even though it's not my character necessarily. So that, and I think it depends on what you're more comfortable with. Um, and what your own kind of personality is as a as a player or what your player's personality is. And I know that DMs don't want to be railroading the player or deciding that we have to go in this direction. And so that can be one of the other reasons that they keep the sidekicks a little bit lower powered. Um, but again, you're going to know that depending on your conversation with the player. What are they going to prefer? What do you prefer? Is there a class that you never get to play? Do you really want to be a warlock? perfect you do that instead of the sidekick and then i do think if it's um if it's new a new class for the player be willing and ready to help them with the mechanics if they want it um or if they get really stuck that's a way to kind of move combat along even if they've been running multiple characters um to be kind of ready and um for players in case players are listening um no for your we don't have any players here we don't want to talk oh, to players okay never mind just dms okay perfect <laughs> the players deep dive is some other show <laughs> okay okay oh well so just in case um know what they're going to do i think that actually works for dms anyway for this if you are going to accidentally take on the mechanics what's their default um are you is it a wizard are they gonna throw a fireball and hope for the best? Um, are they going to protect this person at any cost? So that way you have an immediate kind of reaction and movement and you're not having to really think about it. And so don't worry about it being optimal. Um, what's their baseline and know that at the beginning of the session. Yeah, it's really interesting. You're, you're right that I think, I think wizards specifically when they, when they were talking about sidekicks, they designed them to be weaker than a player, than a player character so that the character would always be front and center of the spotlight. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was, yeah. So I, I it's, it, it, you bring up a really, really good point that like, it's really easier when you have two character sheets of the same style, even if one is simple, the fact that the format is different means you're like, you know, you're looking for skills in different places. That's really, that's really interesting. And it occurred to me that while, while you were talking that you could also, if you, if you just wanted to make sure that the, 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 the kind of deeper, more mechanically rich, complicated character is the player character, you have sort of the four archetypes 
you know, the, the fighter, cleric, rogue, and wizard. Uh, and then you could use the basic rules so that whatever build they have, they're the thief or they're the mm -hmm. champion or they're the, the light or the life cleric or whatever the wizard one is, abjure, I don't know. Um, that those are pretty straightforward and simple. So you don't have the, you know, the paladin who is your primary, uh, this is a poor example. So you, have, you have a wizard that's your primary and they have their fighter friend, but the fighter friend is a, is a battle master. And now that, you know, the player is spending more time on the mechanics mm -hmm. of the sidekick than they are on the mechanics of their main character. Um, I mean, does, is that a problem or you think that that's not even something to really worry about? I think it really depends on the player. So mm -hmm. if they think that the mechanics there are fun, perfect. Go with if, it. Yeah. Yeah. If, if they're getting really bogged down with that, then, you know, then definitely use the, the simplified version. I guess, um, I guess what I would be, so not having done it, right? And, and what I would be worried about is that the spotlight would shift as, as one character gets more mechanically interesting and mechanically powerful, they end up taking over the story, right? They're no longer the sidekick. They become the main character. And the other one, like the, the player's attention shifts over to the one that becomes more mechanically interesting. Has that, is that, is that an issue, do you think? Has that ever happened in your experience that you've seen? That hasn't happened for us, or at least it hasn't remained a problem because if, um, I don't know, I think for the, for the player, they're going to, I don't know, I feel like the mechanics would stay the most interesting for either their character or the ones that they gravitated to and liked. And so if we can steer them away from mechanics that they find really kind of um, heavy or too difficult, um, that that, I think they're going to do that naturally. So maybe just don't push them. So um, like if I'm running a druid and a paladin, um, I might not use the paladin spells. I, they might smite things and that's it. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing I like about giving the player that option is it gives the piece where it gives the, the characters a chance to have these kind of coordinated, um, coordinated attacks and strategies that I feel like our characters in real life would have. They've practiced together, they fought together, and that's not always going to happen with different people's personalities running the characters, but I think in a one-on-one -on -one game, that can work out really well. So um, I know what both of these people are going to do, and I'm able to kind of move them around to do that exact thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if that exactly mm -hmm. answers the, the mechanic question, but I think you can kind of simplify. And I again, if you let the player decide and kind of move naturally, I don't think they're going to get quite as bogged down in the mechanics of something they don't like. Or if you as the DM notice that they keep getting stuck on this person's turn, help them out. Right. You skip over that something. Interesting. Uh, so getting back to kind of balancing monsters, you know, one of the things, so I, I've, I saw this happen when I ran the game. You always have to worry about the action economy. Mm -hmm. Right. And even if you, even if you have an opportunity where you're like, well, oh, four or five orcs is, you know, a pretty good, you know, from from Kobold Fight Club says it's a pretty good challenge. But the action economy is so against the characters that if they face a lot of monsters, there's still going to be a, it can get a little boring. Right. Because like they don't get to do nearly as much stuff mm -hmm. as all these monsters get to do. But it can also be unexpectedly dangerous for the characters. Uh, what have you have you found any sort of rules of thumb for for how to make sure that the number of monsters stays appropriate for a smaller a smaller group of characters? Yeah, I would usually aim toward two or three per character at the very max, mm -hmm. and have a couple that they can just knock right out of initiative order. Because um, yeah, otherwise it starts to get really scary. They miss one turn, especially for your beginning, but like lower level characters they don't get multi-attack or i'm sorry or extra attack or anything they miss a round that starts to get really really serious right <laughs> uh, so as much as you can avoid that i think do if you are wanting to have you know these um the pc and their sidekick are taking on six bandits maybe four of the bandits go at once or you do three and three so that way they're not having to wait so long and again i think also in skewing combat or scaling combat it's okay if the bandits are suboptimal. So they all do the same thing. This guy doesn't need to be over here, but this is where he is because Ted's not sure what's going on. Whatever narrative reason you need, that's okay. And that keeps the combat moving. 
um, which I think is really helpful. Um, yeah, yeah. The couple couple of the things that I discovered was that waves breaking up larger groups of monsters into waves. So you face like one or two. And then, you know, those other guys just hear the battle going on, but it's going to take them two rounds to show up. So by the time those two bandits show up, the first two bandits are already down. And you still get the idea, like, I got to fight four bandits. But it wasn't like you're standing there and four bandits are surrounding you all, you know, just beating you with sticks. Exactly. Um, and the other one is, is so, I, you know, in looking at the challenge of monsters for higher level characters or, or powerful characters or characters being run by really experienced players uh, optimally experienced players that you can tweak things like hit points and damage to account and to give them that greater challenge and you can do the exact opposite when you're running for a smaller number of characters so mm -hmm. if you say like well ogres have whatever it is 59 hit points you know maybe the ogres that are facing one-on-one -on -one characters don't have 59 hit points they have 30 hit points right mm -hmm. it's still within that hit die range so it's still a legal ogre Whatever the hell that means. <laughs> and, um, you know, so you, it's still considered, a, you know, the, the same rough challenge as an ogre, but you're, you're, those 59 hit points are kind of assuming you have four characters, right? Mm -hmm. And that if they're fighting an ogre, maybe two or three characters are all going to focus on that ogre and get it down because it's such a big, beefy problem where you don't have that opportunity when you only have two characters. So lowering the hit points uh, is, you, you know, you can turn, well, just like you could turn that dial all the way mm -hmm. to the right, which I often do when I'm up against five or six characters that are high level who are being played by people who have been playing for 20 years and they, they have been playing fifth edition since it's been out and they know exactly what they're doing they know how good smite is right that i'll just jack those dials all the way to the right like wow that guy that says 72 hit points he's got 120 right <laughs> and um just like that i will just you know turn that dial the other direction when i know that we got two characters they get one attack each they might miss you know <laughs> and when one character misses it's a much bigger deal than when one character misses in a group of four, you know? So um, yeah, I found, I found both of those dials to, to work really well. Uh, what about bosses and legendary creatures? What, what are your experiences with, with facing and or running, you know, boss fights, then particularly legendaries, I guess not, not mm -hmm. so much like a boss could just as likely be an ogre with a funny hat, Yes. <laughs> but a, but a, but a legendary creature in particular are built from the ground up to face mm -hmm. four characters. Uh, have you, have you, has that come up in your, in your one-on-one -on -one games and, and how are those, how is that handled? It has. And those have been some of the, those are the ones where sometimes you need to take a break in the middle because it can be, it can start to get kind of intense. And uh, I think our hardest one, Jonathan was DMing and he, my PC died and he was more upset than I was because I am running all the people. I can have the bard come back and revive her. It's going to be fine. Um, but we actually broke it up into two different combats. So the first one, they got to kind of get to know the the in this one it was a dragon so we got to kind of know what abilities does this dragon have what kind of vulnerabilities or immunities and those kinds of things and then the dragon is hurt enough to need to go back to her lair and so then we're facing her a second time with a better plan and she's still hurt so kind of give the characters a long rest and don't give your monster a long rest um i loved what you wrote the other day about taking away the um, you can take away the legendary actions or the lair actions, but I think also you could kind of split it up. Like you were saying, where you have waves of opponents, a spread out kind of wave where they're getting to think about what they're wanting in advance and go in with a really good plan. So they've got all these special magical items. They've got a potion of heroism or whatever it is. Um, it's still a challenge. It's still difficult, but they have a plan for the lair actions. And there again, some sort of DMPC or any, any NPC can help you there. Maybe they know this boss really, really well. And so they can communicate something that your player is not going to be aware of or that the PC wouldn't naturally know that's going to give them an edge. Because um, one of the things I like about playing one-on-one -on -one is it gives you a chance and a challenge for really creative problem solving. Um, and, and I think that that is true of the stories that we tend to love. We like stories about underdogs and with just two of you and you're supposed to be four of you, you're already there. Um, or even if there's three and you're facing you know, this other creature, um, you're, you're ready and are having to figure something else out. And so, you know, I think that can work out really well too. Yeah. It's, it, it, that it kind of fits my 
that either fits my metaphor or I'm just going to make my metaphor fit it um, of the of the dial, right? And and one of the things I know when I've run high level games again, you know, many much of my experiences, well, not many. I've run a lot of low level stuff too, but I, I play with two groups and they're both very experienced people. They're all DMs on their own, right? They've been, all of us have been playing fifth edition since the minute came out. We've been playing many editions before. So they're, they're very familiar with how all of this works and, and they're, they're not, they're very smart about how they approach things. So I had, and I'm not nearly as smart as they are. And there's one of me and six of them. So I really have to, uh, I, I need to have a lot of tricks to help me keep the challenge up when they're facing like a boss. Mm-hmm. And one of my tricks was very similar to what you're talking about, which is uh, I'll run sample bosses. So I might, you know, in a, in a game I ran a high level game of Storm King's Thunder, there was a blue dragon, spoiler, there's a blue dragon boss. And the blue dragon boss is also a very high powerful sorcerer. And she created a simulacrum of herself who attacked the characters. Mm-hmm. And that gave me a chance to say, what do they do when they face a, uh, you know, what's going to happen? Is the, is the dragon going to get its ass kicked immediately or is it going to be a really hard fight for them? And it turned out to be a really hard fight, you know? And I was like, okay, so I don't have to worry quite as much about, um, uh, I don't have to protect the blue dragon too much. I don't have to come up with a bunch of other things. When they face a blue dragon, it's going to be hard anyway. And in a similar way, so, but many times I'll have to test a boss because I don't want to walk into a boss fight and watch the boss get killed in three rounds because I forgot about Force Cage or I forgot about, you know, some character ability. You know, the monk with Stunning Strike gets rid of three legendary resistances like that and then they cast Hypnotic Pattern on it and then they put funny notes on its back. <laughs> um, so you test it by running a boss-like monster. But in a similar way, it's, you know, running a wave of a monster in the other direction to, to give the characters an opportunity to uh, in, a, in a one-on-one game to knock it down a little bit mm-hmm. and then kind of break from the combat. And then, you know, they've, they're, they're taking it down, but they're taking it down over a, a longer series of events. It's similar to Jack and the hit points way up or Jack and the hit points way down. You're, 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 you're giving the characters opportunities to recuperate after half of a fight. So if they're facing the drag, the white dragon and drag and ice fire beak, maybe one battle isn't the right way to do it. You know, maybe the dragon breathes on them mm-hmm. and then flies away after the, like, Oh my God, you know, my, <laughs> I'm down to three hit points and the other guy's <laughs> down right after one breath weapon. Um, and the dragon's like, hi, you're idiots. I'm not even wasting my time. Right. He flies away. It gives a chance to, to, to try it out in the other direction and see how lethal is this going to be? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I thought I, and you know, I wrote that article and, and I, and I, I haven't run it, right? I haven't tested all the stuff. Those are all sort of theories because mm-hmm. I've never run a legendary monster against two characters before, right? Or, or a character and a sidekick before. And I'm curious how that's going to work. I don't, I don't know. I actually don't know when I will, but hopefully I do at some point. And I think removing legendary actions and legendary resistances so that they act more like a normal character. You, you remove the things that boosted them up so they could fight mm-hmm. four characters because they're not fighting four characters anymore. And then you lower their hit points maybe and do some other things. But one of the other big issues is that like safer suck effects that, mm-hmm. you know, if, a, if you're fighting an enemy spellcaster, an enemy cleric, and the evil cleric casts hold person and maybe cast at a higher level and cast it on both characters and both fail their saving throws, the battle's over, right? And it was one spell where the spells like that are expecting that there's four characters and that somebody can help someone else, like sleep. Right, mm-hmm. like a sleep spell in early levels could knock out all the player characters in yeah. one go. Uh, what are the things you know? I, I, I mean, there's a few off the top of my head that I can think of, but what are some other issues with sort of saver suck effects or you know uh, abilities that monsters might have that can completely eliminate uh, the characters? What 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 should we be on the lookout for there? I think with those, if you're going to use them have some sort of a plan for what they're going to do. So if you really want this cleric to be able to use whole person and you just have the two people, maybe they have a really long monologue and then strut off, they're super proud of themselves. Um, So I think, again, if it can serve a a narrative purpose and a fun purpose, then it can work out. So maybe everybody gets knocked out and they're asleep. They wake up somewhere strange or they're tied up and imprisoned. So I think, and having Player, the players of, love that. 
(laughs) 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 But then they have a really intense enemy that they're going to want to get revenge on because they've had this super embarrassing experience. And um, again, they've had practice against that thing. Um, I also think it depends on the ability of the player, not the player, the, the character. So asking a wisdom-based character to be rolling wisdom saving throws, you're going to be better off. Um, same thing with matching them with the legendary monsters and layers. Are If you can, set them up for someone that they're the perfect hero to go fight. So a druid and a ranger or druid or whoever are going to do a lot better against a green dragon than they are against a white dragon. And so can you kind of skew those things in the PC's favor to where they feel super important and they've had this still really intense fight, but one that they got to use all their special abilities for. Yeah. I think, I think your, your point about failure states, right. And somebody, when I wrote my article, somebody, and I knew this was going to happen. Hey, I'm like, why am I writing this article before I'm talking to Beth on the show? (laughs) And I'll get lots of good ideas, but that's why I could go and rewrite it. Um, and what, but one of the things that, uh, somebody commented on was that you need lots of failure states, like every encounter, any, any risk, anytime the characters are being put in a risky situation, most of the time in a, in a game with four or five characters, you don't have to worry too much about, you know, them being knocked out mm-hmm. unless you're having a boss fight in which they might really get knocked out. But even then, you're, you know, it's rare, right? It's rare when they have a true failure state. But a failure state with two characters is a lot more likely. So in almost any situation, you want to have like a what if the ogre wins? What will the ogre do, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where will they end up? How can they get out of it? Is there? And you don't want a Deus Ex Mechina and have you know, El Minister show up all the time and cast heal on them. Um, but, but that idea of how, you know, failing forward is a common, common phrase used in this situation, right? And that idea that you need to be a, a lot more aware of when you need to fail forward. You need, you need a lot more of those failure states when it, mm-hmm. it feels like when running a one-on-one game, which is funny because I've never really had them in mind. Like, you know, if Enrique, if, you know, his character, something really bad happens, I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'll wing it. Like I wing almost everything. So, so yeah. Uh, so at this point, I'd like to uh, jump to some questions from our, from, from, from the audience. Uh, Rudy, what questions do we have? Yes. Hello. Hi. How are you? Do you have an idea about how many questions we have? Uh, Like four-ish. Okay. Let's go. So from Mogram on Twitter, what is your favorite way to write the one-on-ones? Each event building the complete story, or do you prefer a complete storyline from the start? I prefer somewhere in the middle. So having an idea of an arc that's going to build off of another so I think when you're first starting start as small as you would like and let it kind of build from there Um, so for me they tend to be location based so I'll have an idea this is where we're headed this is who we're going to be facing here's who's helping you but I I'll try to keep it as open as possible from there so that the player has as much flexibility as is possible now you've you've also written published adventures Mm -hmm. Do you, and this is something where I was interested in how they wrote the adventures in Dragon of Icefire Peak, but they actually wrote those not just for one-on-one play. They wrote them for anywhere between one to five or six players. And they use things like there's one ghoul per character. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you find writing adventures for one-on-one play to be significantly different or what were, what were some of the challenges in that? Um, one of the challenges is... I think trusting the DM to trust themselves. So like we've been talking about the dial, if the fight's not going well, even though you've made these allowances in advance, or maybe you wanted to see how it goes, knock off 20 hit points and move on from there. Or um, or have a deus ex machina kind of plan, but maybe it's with some sort of sketchy person that the players aren't necessarily going <laughs> to want to allow ally themselves with. Um, so I think that that's one of the problems that another one that we've run into is um, different play, different sets of people play through at really different rates. So we have a whole lot of RP when we play and we try to set that up in the adventures and then we'll have people blow through them really fast. Well, we expected this, you know, that this one thing was going to take 30 minutes and you did it in three, you know, that 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 can kind of skew those things as well. Um, but we try to always include some sort of a DMPC 
um, or slash sidekick character for, for our adventures. And so that would be, I think, another thing to kind of add in. And depending on the player and how relational their character is, they may want to have their own story kind of parallel alongside someone else's, or they may not be interested in that. And so I think that can really shape the narrative trajectory as well. So I know we want the audience to ask your questions, but I got another question. Um, of the three types of sidekicks that I've seen, one is there's the sidekicks that are actually in the D&D Essentials kit. And they're also, they, if you look at the ones that are published on D&D Beyond, the, the adventures that go beyond, they, they have, I think, sidekicks up to like 13th level. I think it's about 13th level. Um, so we have those sidekicks that are officially published sidekicks mm -hmm. by Wizards of the Coast. Uh, there is the Unearthed Arcana sidekicks article, which lets you add levels to basically any relatively low challenge rating monster inside the monster manual. So you could have you and your wolf could be the two characters. And then there's making a full PC. Mm -hmm. Of those three, what what one do you recommend for a for a, a sidekick slash DM PC? Which one do you think works best? So we use a DMPC that's a full character and a sidekick. Um, and so I think some, depending on how many people you so want you, to So run, you have three characters in your, in your games? We have three. I think that, that tends to make it easier. Mm -hmm. um, but if you, if you are just running two, I think it would depend on what the player's interested in and how long they've been playing. So if you have somebody who's really interested in mechanics, it might be way more fun for them to have these two character sheets and see how they can kind of play with the different abilities. If you have a player who's already a little bit hesitant about combat, keep it as, as easy as possible. And to, I think that the, to me, the essentials kit one would be the, the way to go for those of just kind of keeping it really low key. If you can um, make them a little character sheet that matches the other character sheet so that, that way they still have the practice or things are in the same spot. Um, because and that was the one thing that surprised me with the essentials kit. I thought that it would be tiny character sheets because um, mm -hmm. characters don't always know. I mean, sorry, players don't always know, especially ones who are just getting going. Oh my, I need to look at decks to know what my initiative is. To so say, okay, roll initiative for your sidekick. You're like, oh, I don't, Where's that? I don't yeah, know. Totally yeah, different exactly. place. There's no yeah, initiative square. Rudy, what are the questions we have? So there's a question from Ranger Sierra 11 which you kind of touched on, how do you keep the story moving in the right direction where the party, usually the majority of the group, gets in and buys into the direction the game is flowing with just some player? Do you need to be more flexible? And I have a question too with that. Is there kind of a stronger social contract then between the PC and the DM to kind of be like, yes, I understand that this is a narrative you have built. I will follow that instead of going off and doing my own thing, which... When you're in a larger group, I feel like people kind of want to do that. What do you think? So I think if we can shift that direction to where you as the DM are trying to move things in the way that the player wants to go, that that kind of takes care of both of those problems. So instead of having a, okay, we have to get to this town next. Um, I mean, if that's the case, you can also communicate it to the player outside of the game. I think that that can be one of the things that, especially if you're just getting going is necessary for one-on-one, -on -one. be willing to have those conversations or ask them after, hey, we're gonna be choosing between these three towns, which way do you think your character is leaning? And that gives you a chance to prep and it's just the two of you, they understand that you're working really hard. Um, I think it. I think one-on-one -on -one is best when you have a narrative that's built around a particular character. But if the player knows going in, then they can write their character in that direction too. So, I mean, just like for Waterdeep, it's nice to know we're gonna have a lot of downtime, have a character who has some ideas of things to do during downtime, um, set yourselves up for success at the beginning or pause and kind of reconfigure from there. That's great. Rudy, what other questions you got? Uh, there are just two more questions that are about mechanics. One from Rev J. Bryant, and then another one from that last uh, user asking about how do you deal with healing and status effects, things like dazed or stunned when there's only one PC. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that, that sleep, right? Like sleep sure. is a, is a, sleep is a, a super powerful spell when you have people that can slap you awake. 
but when everyone's asleep, there's no one to slap you awake. Um, yeah. So what do you, do you have any, do you have any other, other thoughts about how to handle mechanics like that? Um, so I think if, if you're really unsure about it, then it would be fine to switch that spell over or, hmm. or again, how can you make that a more interesting challenge for, for the player? Do they have a crazy dream when they fall asleep? Um, and, and within that dream, then they're talking to, uh, to their, this enemy who's who's knocked them out or something same thing if they're frozen and someone's monologuing at them they're making a save again and again so give them those chances or maybe there's an explosion nearby with something else happening and that gives them the chance to wake up so give yourself that flexibility um but um i i do think if it's going to be really important to the narrative that they're facing this really powerful thing maybe you're setting up a villain and they're going to you're setting them up with someone that they can't defeat. Um, I would only do that in select situations, but I do think you can have that conversation with them before because it is going to be really frustrating for them to sit there absolutely powerless. Um, but I, I've had people talk about doing that before and they it worked out for them when they told the player, hey, this is what's going to happen. Um, but again, that trust comes in there. So if they know that you want the, that you love their character and want them to have fun playing, it's going to be easier for them to sit through those roles where they're making these charisma saving throws or whatever it is that's happening. Yeah, I think, I think again, in that same way of, of turning the dial the other direction, when we look at what kind of spells a character can cast, selecting, you know, kind of steering away from those ones that are just gonna end it immediately if, mm -hmm. if they manage to succeed on a, or fail on a saving throw and switch over to other ones. If a wizard says, I'm gonna cast Guiding Bolt instead of casting Hold Person, mm -hmm. you know, that, 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 you know, you're trying, trying to be careful of not diminishing the few actions that a character has available to them. And, you know, Guiding Bolt still can screw a character over pretty badly, mm -hmm. but they can still act. <laughs> they, still yeah. have, they still have their turn. Uh, I think that can really help. Uh, I do have, I, I do have a, a, another question that I wanted to get to because it's, it's sort of a dream I have of taking one of the bigger hardback adventures. Like if I was to take Descent into Avernus and say, you know, when Enrique and I are done with Dragon of Icebrier Peak, we're going to start over again and we're going to run like a 1 to 16 mm. hardcover campaign. Um, do you think that's possible? And what kind of things would, would have to would I have to do to do something like that? So definitely, yes, possible. We're doing Curse of Strahd right now. Um, so I, I love this question. I have three examples. So with Curse of Strahd, we got rid of, um, oh, I knew I would forget her name, not Tatiana. The Irina? Yeah, we got rid of Irina, and then the PC becomes Irina. Mm -hmm. yep. So that's the person Strahd's fixated on. For Waterdeep Dragon Heist, maybe you have them run around with Rainier. So one of these, um, one of these adventures with really, really rich NPCs in a vibrant location, I think are ideal for running one-on-one. -on -one. And then use one of the NPCs in the adventure already and have that be, um, you know, maybe still give them a sidekick, but have that be your kind of go-to person who's going to help them get around. Um, something like the like Ravnica, I know there's not a full adventure for that yet, but I think that one-on-one -on -one would be so cool for Ravnica because it gets around, I feel like all those adventures would, or if you have a multi-person party, not everybody's going to want to be in guilds that align with each other. And so then instead, if you just have the one player that you're trying to make happy, I think you could have a lot more nuanced adventures or something like Storm King's Thunder, where you have to make sure that the characters are on board for dealing with the giant problem when they could easily get distracted with something else. Again, if they know, then they can have, okay, my character really cares about giants for whatever reason. You've solved that problem. You're not having to strong arm four people into, we really need you to be super invested in this one thing. So, um, I think kind of making those larger scale story tweaks, but using also all the work that's gone into those hardcover adventures, letting that work to your advantage. But I do think it takes kind of zooming out. So maybe with Waterdeep, depending on your character um, or depending on your player, maybe they want to play a Zentarum character and that's gonna kind of shift things. You could have a really cool time in, in Waterdeep with that. 
Um, but I do think that you need to set those conversations up in advance and, and set those expectations for both of you. And I think you'll tend to know based on who you're playing with, if they're going to be more like, you know, I really want to be a Harper or I want to, and, and I think that that will, will help too. Yeah. I, I, I think I'm still fixate on the boss fight thing. Cause I think about like running tyranny of dragons mm. and it's like, what, what does it look like when one player is facing Tiamat? Right. And same with Strahd, like, you know, what is it going to be like when one character, I mean, so in, in your case, I think it's going to be three and that's mm. pretty reasonable, right? Like, it's, you know, it's one shy of what the expectation is. Right. Um, you know, but, but, but how's that going to go? And what if the main character is the one that Strahd charms, right? <laughs> yeah. Like that, that, but then you think about it, like, oh, it could be really interesting. Like what if they are charmed yeah. and they're charmed for months and then they have that one time where he forgot to recharm them mm -hmm. and it breaks and they've got the sword, you know, and they got the one chance to backstab yeah. Strahd with the sun blade, you know? So I, I think that, the, and then, and that same idea of like, I, you know, it's, it's so cinematic to think about mm -hmm. this, huge pit leading down to the abyss and a five-headed gargantuan dragon is standing there and there's one character standing there facing it like that is crazy so i i i, I you know at some point in my life i want to do that right at some point in my life i want to run a campaign like a full hard bat and it might be avernus because mm -hmm. i'm not my, my other my, my two groups are all moving towards everon so i have this big avernus book and i'm like i'll find the one person who wants <laughs> to play avernus and and i'll run avernus for them uh, and, and I, I, it feels like it could be fantastic, right? It really feels like now that I've got some, a, a little bit of experience, I've only played like four games, right? One-on-one. Mm -hmm. -on -one. So a total of like five or six hours worth, but I totally am like ready to run Avernus, right? I'm, I'm totally ready to like, I'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the tricky bit is like, I just don't want them to get run over by one of those war machines. And that's the end of the, <laughs> right. So you know, I don't, I, yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I think that uh, I, you know, talk about one of the, you know, one of the things I, 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 I said when I'm like, Oh, I really need to get, I really need to get you on the show was like, you're skating where the, you know, you were skating where the puck is going to be right. Like mm -hmm. you were, you know, one-on-one -on -one play, I think was a side topic of the world of D and D. But again, I think there's like this secret underground of you know maybe i don't know what five you know, half of the people are actually playing one-on-one -on -one because it's hard it's hard to get mm -hmm. six people together it's hard to get scheduled every every time i talk about this stuff and i say like what are the hard parts of D D? number one is scheduling like oh, i can't get all my friends you know everybody's busy and half of them are flakes and no one can show up and people are sick and you know, dogs got issues you know so they, they can't get a group together but it's like if you can get one other person mm -hmm. to play to play you know you're good and now that we can play online and we can play on discord mm -hmm. and we can play on all these we have all these other avenues all you need is like two people that are interested and you can play dnd and i think that just it might be one of the biggest you know biggest openings for people to be able to play dnd yeah maybe since its inception mm -hmm. you know that that it's always been a group-based game as a as a primary focus but if we can get to the point where the game is is more easily played with fewer people and then people like you and i who have experienced it go wow this is a this is great right this is a really fun way to play i think that uh yeah i think it's a i think it could be a really great time so thank you very much for coming on the show i really appreciate it i've learned i learned a lot it, it, you know I, I hope i hope the folks that that are watching will will give one-on-one D D a try right it's it's get 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 past that it's going to be weird problem and just do it. it it's not weird and it's really a lot of fun. Uh, is there anything, uh, anything you would, you would like to promote? Any, any, any links you want to send anybody to? Where can yeah. people find you? Um, so we are at dndduet.com and um, you can find links to all of our adventures on DMs Guild there or just search my name, Beth Bob, they'll come up. Um, so that'll get you really where you need to go. We also have a Patreon if you're interested and the URL for that is patreon.com slash Grove Guardian Press, I think. Um, again, from our website, it'll link to all the other things. Great, great, great. Yeah, and people should definitely check that stuff out. It's all, it's all really excellent. Well, thank you again for the show, Rudy, our guardian angel. Thank you again for managing the show and getting, getting up and running. And uh, we will see everybody again next time. Thank you very much. Uh -huh.